Dear Father in heaven, Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be with us. Uh, Lord, please give me the strength, strengthen my voice. This is my fifth talk today, and I'm a little bit worn out, but I pray that you'll just give me energy and help me to uh, share what I know about this subject in a, in a simple and clear way. Please bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I also don't have uh, any slides from my computer to go along with this topic, so it's just me and my Bible. All right, Revelation chapter 14. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, having his father's name written where? Written in their foreheads, right? Now, this is a prophecy about the 144,000. It's a prophecy about God's final uh, people that are prepared for the second coming. They go through the seven last plagues. They have the seal of God in their foreheads, and they have the Father's name written in their foreheads. Now, I, I think you could probably answer this question for me. When the Bible talks about the Father's name, what is that talking about? What is his name? Does it mean just, you know, proper pronunciation? Character. Right. Name is character. And I'll show you a verse on this in a, in a little while that proves this, that when the Bible talks about the name of God, it is specifically talking about his character. And when this verse says the 144,000 have his father's name, the father of Jesus, his name written in their foreheads, Basically, it means that the character of God has been written in their minds. God's character has become part of their characters. That's what the forehead represents. It doesn't mean your skin. It means your mind. It means your heart. Uh, and that means that the, what God is like is now woven into what you are like. And God's ultimate goal is to accomplish this. If we're going to be prepared for heaven, we're in Revelation 14.1, for those of you that just came in. If we're going to be prepared for heaven, God's ultimate goal is to have us reflect his character, to reveal his character through us. Now, first, we've got to see his character. We have to discern what his character is like, and then it can then be written in our foreheads. Uh, if you were the devil, and if you knew that God is trying to develop a final generation of people that are going to reflect the character of God and have the character of God written inside their minds. And that once that final generation of people is developed, we're at the end of the world. If you were the devil, then what would you be trying to, uh, to accomplish? What would you be trying to stop? The development of the character of God and his people. And God's character can't develop inside of people unless they discern his character and see what his character is like. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, how, how can we become like something that we don't understand? So God, his program is to reveal his character to his people and to have that character written inside of our souls and then to, be, to have that character revealed through us. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit like um, something my son said to me some time ago. Here's my, my little boy, and he came into the bathroom while I was brushing my teeth. Had my pajamas on. My little boy ran in, and he saw me brushing his teeth, and he looked at me, and he gave me the greatest compliment that I think a father can ever receive from his son. He looked at me, and he said, Daddy, I want to be just like you. That's what he said. <laughs> just a... Uh, really touched my heart. And I thought, wow, praise God, my little boy wants to be like me. <laughs> and then right as I thought about that, my mind thought about, about God. And I thought, Lord, help me to be like you. Because if my son wants to be like me, Lord, I need to be like you. So that what he becomes like is good. And, and that's really what our Heavenly Father wants. He wants us to look to him and say, Father, I want to be like you. I want to be like my Father in heaven. I want to be like Jesus. And the issue of the great controversy, the, at the heart of the issue, is the character of God. God made us in the Bible, it says in Genesis 1. He made us in his image. He made us to see and reveal and reflect his character. 
And Satan has been uh, attacking that, that purpose ever since the beginning. And he wants to prevent the 144,000 from having the restored character of God in their foreheads, in their hearts. Here's a statement from The Great Controversy, page 569. One sentence, and it has, it has burned into me, this one line. It says, it is Satan's constant effort. Satan's what? Constant, constant effort. Now, it doesn't just say it's something he's trying to do, but it says it's something he try, he's trying to do all the time. His constant effort is, listen to this, to misrepresent the character of God, the nature of sin, and the real issues at stake in the great controversy. See that? That is powerful. That's what Satan is constantly trying to do. Misrepresent God's character, misrepresent the nature of sin, and misrepresent the real issues because he does not want us to understand those real issues. Now, one of the ways, or probably the main way, that Satan uh, seeks to misrepresent the character, is God, the character of God is by leading us into extremes, leading us into uh, imbalances concerning who the Lord really is. Uh, it reminds me of a little article I read some time ago. I don't know if any of you have ever been on a cruise, but this was an article about a cruise ship that sank. They don't sink very often. People go on cruises and uh, you know they hope it's going to be a good vacation, but this particular cruise ship sank. This came out of the Fresno Bee in 2007, a few years ago, and it happened in Athens, Greece, or at least off the coast of Greece. It says here, um, cruise captain's, captain blames currents. A cruise ship captain indicated, or no, indicted on negligence charges after his vessel foundered on a volcanic reef and sank in the Aegean Sea blamed strong currents for the accident. And I was impressed by that. Uh, 1,500 people approximately were on board. There were just two people that were missing. They found everybody else or got everybody else off the ship. And I don't know what happened to those uh, two French tourists who showed up missing. But I thought about that and I thought uh, the reason why that ship sank was because of strong currents. A current that moved that ship toward the reef. And as I think about the subject, uh, I'm convinced that there are strong currents that are moving in this world. And some of them are moving in our church. And those currents are moving to, uh, to lead us to extremes or to an, an unbalanced view of the character of God. That's what the devil is trying to accomplish. And we need to beware of those currents. Now, probably the, the classic biblical description of the character of God and the balanced view is in the book of Exodus chapter 34. Let's go to Exodus 34. And let me clarify some things here that in Exodus chapter 34, what happens is God describes his character. In the Ten Commandments, God wrote down with his own finger the principles of his character. When Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, Jesus on earth lived the life of that character so that we could see it in action in humanity. Did you get that? Exodus 34 is a description. The Ten Commandments, God wrote it. And then when Jesus came, he lived it. And all of those revelations are in harmony. The character that God described, the character that he wrote with his own finger on stone, and the character that Jesus lived when he was here, the revelation of his character of love, all of these revelations 
agree with each other. They're harmonious. Now, in Exodus 34, what happens is uh, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. God instructed him that he was going to reveal his character to him. He was going to show him his glory. So in verse 4, Exodus 34, Moses cut out two tables of stone, like the first ones, which he had broken. And then he rose up early in the morning. He hiked up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands the two tables of stone. And in verse 5, it's, the Bible says that the Lord then descended in a cloud. And he stood with him there. And what did he proclaim? It says the Lord, he proclaimed the name of the Lord. See that? Now we just read our Revelation 14.1 that talks about the 144,000 having the Father's name written in their foreheads. And this is a great verse to prove that name represents character. Because here we have God coming down on Mount Sinai to proclaim his name. And then what he does is he proclaims his character. And it goes on in verse 6. And it says, the Lord passed by before Moses. Moses was actually hiding in a cleft of the rock. God put him in this little cleft in chapter 33, verse 22. It says that, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will, pass, I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And I'm going to reveal my glory to you, which is his character. Exodus 34, verse 6 says, the Lord passed by before him, and he proclaimed. So there he's proclaiming his name, which is what verse 5 says, he would proclaim the name of the Lord. And verse 6 says, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed. So we know that his name is what he's about to proclaim. And what he proclaims is his character. Verse 6 says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses made haste, and he bowed his head toward the earth. And what did he do? He worshiped. Now, as Moses was worshiping God, let me ask you, do you think he was worshiping the true God or was he worshiping a false God? The true God. Did when he worshiped, did he have a correct revelation of the character of God before he worshiped? Yes, he did. There's no doubt about it. Moses was there with God himself, and God himself was revealing his character to Moses. And as you look at verse 6 and 7, and let the Bible speak to your heart, basically we can see that God's character is a blend of various attributes. Can you see that? It's not just one thing. His character is a blend. He has different, different qualities. <clears throat> it's a little bit like a, like a, like a good meal. <laughs> if a lady you know, makes a good meal, uh, many times you add various seasonings, you add different ingredients, and you put them all together. And if you combine them right, you've got a good meal. Isn't that right? And that's what Exodus is doing. It's showing us all of the different attributes of God combined together properly in a good spiritual meal, you might say. And if you look at the different characteristics uh, in verse 6, it says the first thing he says is that he's merciful. He's very merciful, and I'm glad for that, aren't you? Somebody once said, we often complain that we don't get what we want, but we should all be thankful that we have not yet received what we deserve. And the reason why we haven't is because God is merciful, very merciful. And he's also gracious. He's a gracious God. He's long-suffering, which means he's patient. That's what long-suffering means. He doesn't uh, get upset quickly. He's very patient. He um, endures a lot. 
It also says that he's abundant in goodness. He's not just good, but he's abundant in goodness and in truth. He's a God of truth. And then it goes on in verse 7 and says that he keeps mercy for thousands and he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So there's a lot of forgiveness in the character of God, a lot of mercy in the character of God. But then it goes on, and at the end of verse 7 it says, yet he will also by no means, which means definitely not, he will not clear the guilty, but he will visit. And then it talks about uh, his punishment uh, because of iniquity upon the fathers and upon the children and the children's, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now it's obvious when you read these verses and accept them at face value that God's character is a blend of what we, may, we might call mercy and then what's on the other side? Justice. justice, right, mercy and justice. And even though the word love is not used in this verse, the New Testament certainly does, and it says that God is love. God is love. And so my, as I put these verses together, uh, it impresses me that God's character is a blend of mercy and justice, but that, that those attributes are rooted in love because love is the very heart of his character. Love is at the heart of, heart of hearts of God and it motivates everything he does. And his mercy is a manifestation of love and his justice is a manifestation of love. And we need to have a correct understanding of God's character and those attributes all blended together uh, based in truth as the Bible says at the end of verse six. Now, it's easy to see, or I hope you can see, by looking at these uh, attributes, that if the devil is going to try to misrepresent the character of God, if he's trying constantly to do that, then he would try to get us to go to extremes concerning his character in one way or another. There are some people that believe that the Lord is so just that there's not really much mercy in his heart. I think you know, that's definitely a current within the world, wouldn't you say? And often within the church. A lot of justice, no mercy. And then there are, there's the opposite side of the fence where there's another current, a strong current, where some people feel that God is so merciful that there's very little justice in his character. That's another extreme. When it comes to justice itself, there are extremes. In the evangelical world, their view of justice is that God is going to burn people in hell forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, it's very clear to us that that is an extreme view of justice, wouldn't you say? God is going to torture people throughout all eternity. That's not real justice. Now then another extreme on the opposite side of the fence concerning justice, and this current is within Adventism, not just in our church, but it's in other churches as well. And that view of justice says basically that God really doesn't punish sin at all. Some see his justice in a perverse way that he burns people forever, and others go to the other side and say he doesn't have any justice at all. And all of these, uh, view, these, all of these are misrepresentations of the character of God. Now let's zero in on verse 7. And let's look at the word visits. Oh, do all your Bibles have that word visits there? He visiting, right. He will by no means clear the guilty but he, he visits, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, there is a controversy in our church, a character of God controversy about that word, about that concept, visiting. There are three different views that we can choose from on what this means. 
this is clearly talking about the justice of God. Three views. One view is that God's justice or his visiting of sin uh, is entirely passive, which means that he basically, uh, that justice means that God simply allows natural consequences to run their course. Have you ever heard that view? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that would be basically like saying um, a smoker, if you smoke long enough, you're going to get lung cancer. If you eat all of the wrong food, you know, you're going to clog your colon or you're going to get diabetes or you're going to get heart disease because that's just the consequence of, of a lifestyle that is not healthy. And there are those that feel that the justice of God or God's visitation of sin simply means that he allows the natural consequences of sin to run their course. And I, I call that the passive view of God's justice. Now, the opposite view of that, and this is option two, that was option one, Option two is what I call the active view of God's justice. And an active view basically says that God himself directly punishes sin. He doesn't just allow consequences to run their course. You know, he actually himself does something about it. So that's, uh, that's the active view. That's option number two as we consider the meaning of visiting. Option number three, there is a third option. Can you guess what it is? That's it. That's right. Option three is a combination that, yes, there are times when God's uh, justice simply allows natural consequences to run their course. This is true. But there are also times when God chooses in his infinite wisdom and in his uh, sovereignty to directly punish sin. Option three is that he does both sometimes and that both of them are consistent with his, with his overall justice and that they truly are just and that they are motivated by his love, which motivates everything that he does. Now, my conviction, I'll tell you openly, my conviction is that option three is correct. Option three is correct. There are plenty examples in the Bible and in the writings of Ellen White where God certainly does allow natural consequences to run their course. No doubt about it. And I also believe, and I'm going to show you one today before we're done, that there are also many examples that you just, I just can't rationalize away. I just can't. They're just, they're just right there. There are examples where God himself does actively step in and he does punish sin himself. And the issue is, if that's true, that he does do that sometimes himself, the issue is, is he just in the doing of it? Or is he not just in doing it? And I believe that he is just in everything that he does. Now, let's, let's go back two pages in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32 is really the context of Exodus 34. Remember, it says that God told Moses to go up on the mountain and to bring two tables of stone like the first ones. Remember that? The first ones he broke. And there's a reason why he broke them. And after Moses broke them, then God called him back up on the mountain to get the tables a second time. And that's when he gave a description of his character. So the whole context of the second tables being written and the description of his character goes back to chapter 32, which is an event in Israel's history which uh, has to do with the golden calf. And this chapter is extremely revealing about some of these issues of the character of God when you look at it closely. So let's just uh, briefly review this chapter. Exodus 32, verse 1. It says, When the people saw that Moses 
delayed to come down out of the mountain. Now what happened was God called up Moses. First he spoke the Ten Commandments when the Israelites were at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then he called Moses to come up, and that's when he wrote them down the first time. And when Moses went up on top of the mountain the first time, he was gone for quite a while. <coughs> he was up there for a long time, and it says he delayed to come down. And so because he was up there for so long, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Now God had put Aaron in charge of the, or Moses had put Aaron in charge of the camp. And he said, you watch the people, you're the leader. When I'm gone, I'm going up there to get the Ten Commandments, and you're in charge. So the people then gathered around Aaron because Moses had been gone for a long time. And they said to him, up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what is become of him. Now, this is interesting. It said, they said, up, make us gods. And this is obviously peer pressure. You know, the peer pressure's there, and they're, they're pressuring Aaron. Aaron, make us a god. And as I look at this verse, it just speaks to my heart that as I think about God and as I think about worshiping him, I want to make sure that I don't make myself a god. God hasn't called us to make a god. He's called us to worship him as he is. There, there's two ways that we can go about trying to you know, worship God or come up with a correct view about the character of God. <clears throat> One way is to let God reveal his character to us in the Bible and to receive that revelation and to believe that. The other way is for us to try to create in our minds a version of what we would like God to be which really is making our own God. And that's not a good, good method. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, God is not calling us to make a God. He's calling us to worship him and let him show us who he is. Are you with me? Big difference. And they decided to make a God that they wanted him to be like because they didn't know what happened to Moses. And now Aaron, in verse 2, Aaron responds. What should Aaron have done when the people came and said, Aaron, Moses has been gone for a long time. We want you to make us a god. What should Aaron have done? What was that? They could, he could have asked them to give him time? Yeah, well, uh, I think that's one option, but I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think, you know, if, if Eve came to Adam and said, here, honey, take a bite of this fruit, and Adam knew that God had said, don't eat that fruit, Adam really didn't need to tell Eve, let me just give me time to pray about it, and then I'll come back and give you my answer. Uh, he should, you know, uh, Adam should have just told Eve. He should have put his arm around her and said, Honey, I love you and I'm not going to divorce you over this, but I can't do that. I cannot eat that fruit. And I think that Aaron, my, my opinion is that Aaron uh, really didn't even need to pray about it. He should have just told them uh, firmly that, yeah, absolutely not. I'm not going to do this because you don't make a God. There's already a God up there. We've seen his glory on Mount Sinai. We've heard the thunder. We've seen the lightning. We've felt the earthquake. Moses is still up there. He's going to come down. And like Carrie said, absolutely not. I, no, I don't think they were eating the manna at this time. Not yet. They were not in their, in their journeys yet in the wilderness. Yeah, they had crossed the Red Sea. That's right. And God was taking care of them. And anyway, uh, Aaron needed to be a leader at that point. He should have firmly said to them, no, I'm not going to do this. Um, just like God's character is a blend of mercy and justice, God wanted Aaron to have that blend inside of his own character. 
There's a time to be merciful and a time to be just. And Aaron should have just said, I can't do this. The answer is no, we're not going to do it. But he didn't do that. He was, uh, he was weak and he was yielding. He was compromising. He waffled, that's right. And so he told these people, he said, all right, break off your golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So the people broke off their golden earrings, which were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And it says, he received them at their hand, and he fashioned their gold with a graving tool. And remember this in verse 4. I'm going to come back to this later. It says, he made it into a molten calf. Do you see that? So Aaron is the one that made this calf. No doubt about it. Because was he used to doing that? I don't know. No, I, I don't know. I don't know, and I bet his conscience bothered him all the way. But he was too weak to take a stand. And so he did it. He made this golden calf, and then he said to the people, he said, these are your gods, O Israel, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt. It says, when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation. And he said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. Now, was that the real God that they were worshiping? Obviously not. No, they, they had created their own God, their own opinions, and this was false worship, a false Lord, a feast to the Lord. It was a false Lord. They rose up on the morrow early in the morning. They offered burnt offerings, peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and then it says they rose up to play. They rose up to play. Well, up on Mount Sinai, in verses 7 and 8, the Lord begins to have a dialogue with Moses. He knows exactly what's going on in the camp, and they begin to have quite a conversation. Now, we don't have time to read all of this because uh, there's a lot I want to cover. But finally, God instructed him to go down. And in verse 15, it says, Moses turned, and he went down from the mountain. And he's carrying the two tables of stone. And as he's on the way down the mountain, he then meets Joshua who had been waiting for him, he left Joshua. They both went up together, but he left him somewhere, and now he meets him on the way down. And in verse 17, it says, when Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, they got closer to the camp, and all of a sudden he heard all this shouting going on, and he said to Moses, this is the noise of war in the camp. Our, our enemies are invading us. There's a battle going on. <clears throat> but Moses knew that was not the situation. Verse 18 says, he said, it is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but it is the noise of them that sing, do I hear? And it came to pass, as soon as he came near to the camp, Moses looked and he saw the calf. He saw the dancing. And it says, Moses' anger waxed hot. And he took those tables out of his hand and he broke them beneath the mountain. Now, I would assume that there was some really good acoustics out there in the desert. And when they were having this big party, dancing around the calf, getting naked, doing whatever they were doing, all of a sudden they heard this crash. And then they turned and they looked and they realized Moses had returned. The one that they thought was never going to come back, here he is. And he's now, uh, he's now standing there. And as they looked at his face, you know, what do you think they saw in his face? Uh, the Bible says that his anger waxed hot. He was very intense. Now, if you think about Aaron, who was very mild and gentle, and he said, okay, let's do it. Let's build the calf. And then you think about Moses, whose anger waxes hot and who breaks the Ten Commandments right there at the foot, at the foot of the mountain. Uh, which one of, the, of those two men at that moment is revealing more accurately the character of God. Was it Aaron or was it Moses? It was Moses. That's right. Yes, that's true. His face was illuminated because of being with Jesus. And I don't think uh, that his anger was, was hatred for the people, but it was a very intense anger that was motivated by an intense love and he was just very, very, uh, he was outraged that these people would do this 
and, and make a god out of out of gold. What you were going to say? Okay. That's right. That's right. Moses wanted to be blotted out himself. So his, his anger was definitely real, but it was not isolated from his love. There was, a, there was love underneath that anger, and he was willing. He wanted to be blotted out himself. Now, let's keep going. It says in verse 20 that he took the calf, which they had made, and then he burned it in fire, and he ground it to powder, and he put it in water, and then he made the children of Israel drink it to try to show them this is not God. You can't drink God. And then in verse 21, it says, Moses said to Aaron, he said, what did this people do to you so that you have brought such a great sin upon them? You've done a terrible thing, Aaron, in allowing this to happen and in building this, uh, this calf. And then Aaron said to him, let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. You know the people, they're set on mischief. They said to me, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. And then I cast it into the fire and there came out this calf. <laughs> That's right, because we already just read, didn't we? In verse uh, four, that Aaron's the one that made the calf. Now, this tells me a little more about Aaron's character. Not only was he uh, weak and, and yielding and compromising when he shouldn't have been, but now he, he rationalizes away what he did, and he even lies. He even lies, yeah, like, like we all do. And it just, this impresses me that uh, what Aaron should have done is he should have just acknowledged that he had done wrong and said, I did it, I'm sorry, I never should have done that. And if we, if we discover from reading our Bibles that we've made a mistake about the character of God, how should we relate to that mistake? Should we lie? Should we justify ourselves? Should we um, you know, create an image of God that isn't the real God? Or should we acknowledge that we've made a mistake and confess our sin and ask God to forgive us? That's what we should do. And that's what Aaron should have done. But he didn't. Okay, maybe, maybe he was. Maybe he was trying to say, yeah, it was a supernatural thing that happened. But we know that he was, he was denying the truth. He was denying the truth. And verse 25 says, when Moses saw the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked to the shame among their enemies, Moses stood in the gate of the camp. Now, this is really important. Moses then stood at the gate of the camp, and he said, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. Now, when you read this in Patriarchs and Prophets, the chapter called the Golden Calf, it, uh, it adds a little more information to this. And it says that when Moses said, who is on the Lord's side, let him come to me, the Levites came over to his right. And then it also says that those who were uh, repentant, they came over to his left. Now the Levites had nothing to do with the golden calf worship. They did not bow down. They maintained their loyalty to God. And they came on to Moses' right. They were totally innocent. Then those that repented and were willing to you know, confess and acknowledge their sin, they went over onto Moses' left. And Aaron was in that group. He finally recognized, you know, I've done wrong. And he was on the left side. Now that left one group in the middle. The loyal were on the right. The repentant were on the left. And who does that leave left? Yeah, the unrepentant, that's right. Those who chose to hold on to their sin, and they were probably the instigators of pressuring Aaron in the first place to worship the golden calf. Now, this is a very uh, interesting situation. Here you've got the loyal on the right, 
You've got the repentant on the left, and you've got a group in the middle that refuse to change. They came out of Egypt. They were at Mount Sinai. They saw the glory of God on the mountain. They heard the thunder. They saw the lightning. They felt the earthquake. They heard the voice of God speaking the Ten Commandments. But in the light of that incredible revelation and the opening of the Red Sea and all the things that happened, all the plagues they saw in Egypt, they saw the whole thing. And after all of that, they, they refused to be on God's side. And this group of people actually had become very, very dangerous. They were dangerous to the rest of the camp. If, uh, you know, if you just let them go on, they're going to infect the whole camp. And God's ultimate goal in bringing these people out of Egypt was to then bring this people into the promised land. And through this people, he was going to come down himself in, in the form of a little baby. And, and, and then through living and dying and rising, he wanted to open his arms and save as many people as he could all over the world. And that plan was to be fulfilled through this people. And now you've got this middle group who refuses to repent, who's had all this light, and yet they're, they're a threat. They're like a cancer cell in a body, and they're threatening to destroy the body. So the question is, how is a loving God going to relate to this middle group? Now, he has a number of options. One option is just to let them run their course. You know, leave them in the desert. We'll just take the rest of the, the people on the right and people on the left, and we'll just go on and leave you here to fend for yourselves. Just let, you know, the natural consequences run their course. That was one option, right? But he had another option. And the other option was to, to intervene and act directly in justice through the Levites against this middle group. And that is what he chose to do. He chose to do option B. And so look at the verse, verse 27. Moses said to the, to the Levites, thus says the Lord God. Now, was Moses right? Was it really the Lord that was leading him? Yes, it was. When you read Patriarchs and Prophets, it was definitely God who was leading Moses. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Put every man his sword by his side to the Levites. Go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. And it says, the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. 3,000 people died. And they did not die of natural consequences. No doubt about it. It wasn't like smoking ran its course and they got lung cancer. God specifically instructed Moses to instruct the Levites to go and to do an act of, of justice. Now, when you read about this in, in Patriarchs and Prophets, listen to this. <clears throat> this is her, Ellen White's, description of what we just read. Page 324. Those who performed this terrible work of judgment <clears throat> were acting by divine authority, executing the sentence of the king of heaven. Men are to beware how in their human blindness they judge and condemn their fellow men. But when God commands them to execute his sentence upon iniquity, he is to be obeyed. Those who performed this painful act, this was not a fun act. It wasn't pleasant. It was painful for them. But they did it. Thus, man thus manifested their abhorrence of rebellion and idolatry, and they consecrated themselves more fully to the service of the true God. This is the service of the true God. They're worshiping and honoring and serving the Levites. And then it says that the Lord honored their faithfulness by bestowing special distinction upon the tribe of Levi. God took the Levites and he then blessed them and he put them in charge of his temple because they were faithful in carrying out his justice against this middle group of people. Now, if you have, if you have uh, some kind of a disease, have you ever heard of uh, flesh-eating disease? Uh, I know a man that, that 
was at Loma Linda recently, and they, they fought for his life because he had an infection, and he got this flesh-eating disease, and it was working its way into different parts of his body, and they almost, they almost lost him. But uh, the, the doctors there, you know, and a lot of prayer going up for this guy. Uh, I was reading about it on the, on the emails that I was getting about this man that finally uh, they, they beat it, and he survived. But if, if, uh, if you've got a flesh-eating disease that's coming up your leg or uh, gangrene or something like that, and they can't stop it, and a physician decides to put the knife in and to cut off your leg above the knee, is that, is that a, a cruel thing for him to do, or is that a merciful thing? It's a merciful thing, right. Now, somebody who doesn't know what's going on might be looking off in the distance, and they see a, a, a man, a physician with a knife, cutting off someone's leg. And they might think, my, you know, what a cruel thing you're doing. Look at this man. He's, 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 he's almost committing murder. He's cutting off someone's leg. And they might, they might think, that's not a reflection of God's character at all. But when you're right there on the scene and you know what's happening, you realize that the physician doing what he has to do, amputating that leg, is doing it because it's got to be done. It's a merciful thing to do, to take out that leg, right? And that's what's going on here. Uh, it's very clear from this statement. And here's another statement as you keep reading. This is page 325 and 326. Ellen White says, it was necessary that this sin should be punished as a testimony to the surrounding nations of God's displeasure against idolatry. Love, no less than justice, demanded that, this, that for this sin, judgment should be inflicted. It was the mercy of God that thousands should suffer to prevent the necessity of visiting judgments upon millions. See that? He was protecting millions by sacrificing the thousands. And this was mercy, she says. In order to save the many, he must punish the few. It was necessary for the good of Israel and, and also as a lesson to all succeeding generations that this crime should be promptly punished. It was in love to the world, in love to Israel, and even to the transgressors, that this crime was punished with swift and terrible severity. Now, in this case, this was a manifestation of the justice of God. And let me ask you, was this passive justice or active justice? Active. active. It was no, there's no doubt about it. And she's very careful to explain that underneath that active justice was a heart that was motivated by love and that did something that had to be done. It was a necessary act. Um, some people quote statements of Ellen White where they say, God will never use force to command obedience. Have you heard that statement? It is contrary to the character of God to use force. And they'll use that statement and they'll say, God, God is always passive. He, he's never active. He'll never, he'll never judge uh, or use force in any way. And my response to that is when you, have, when you read the whole statement carefully, it says that it's talking about how he will never use force to force obedience, to compel obedience. He will never do that. But he will use force sometimes to put down rebellion. And there's a difference between he did not use force to get that middle group to obey him. He would never do that. But he did use force to put down their rebellion in an emergency because it was necessary and it had to be done and it was his love that motivated him to do it. Are you with me? That's exactly what she says. Now, uh, let, me, let me tell you something else before we go to a couple more verses. In Hebrews, we're gonna, I think, pretty much finish this up, Hebrews 1. Um, in the time of, of Noah, when Noah was preaching, do you know what one of the main arguments of the philosophers of Noah's day, one of their main arguments to convince, them, to convince the masses that they didn't need to get into the ark? I'll tell you what it was. This is Patriarchs and Prophets, page 95. It says, as sin became more general 
uh, it appeared less and less sinful. As sin became general, it appeared less and less sinful. And they finally declared, these are the philosophers, that the divine law was no longer in force and that it was contrary to the character of God to punish transgression. This is Patriarchs and Prophets, page 95. This was their argument. They said, God's not like that. It's contrary to his character to directly send a flood. He won't do it. And that was the delusion that kept them outside of the ark. To me, that's uh, quite enlightening. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. This verse is amazing. And let me ask you a question while you're turning to this verse. And you know, I don't want you to answer it out loud. Just answer it in your heart. Does Jesus Christ have any hatred in his heart? Now, don't say it out loud. Just think about it. Does Jesus Christ have any hatred in his heart? If you answered no, you're wrong. You're wrong. If you answered no, you're wrong. And I'll prove that from the Bible. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, is talking about the Son. To the Son, the Father said, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Verse 9 is the Father talking about the Son. And he says, You have, you have loved. See that verse? Does, does Jesus have love in his heart? Definitely. And it says here that he has loved righteousness and, what's that next word? Hated. He has hated. Now, what does it say he hates? He hates, okay, my Bible says iniquity. Maybe your Bible says lawlessness. That's right, he hates lawlessness. When you read the book Desire of Ages, which I read, which changed my life many years ago, uh, it's all about Jesus' love. It's all about his, his mercy. The whole book is about the life of Christ and the revelation of his character. And it says in that book that Jesus never hated anything except for one thing. Except for one thing. It says he hated sin. Have you heard the expression, he, he hates the sin, but he loves the sinner? Have you heard that? It's true. Jesus loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. And this verse, Hebrews 1, verse 9, says that he hates iniquity. He hates sin. Now, let me ask you another question. How much does he hate sin? I don't know if we can answer that question. Another question, why does he hate sin? Yeah, I That's right. That's right. That's right. He loves you so much that he hates the sin that would separate you from him forever. Does that make sense? I love my, my family, my little boy, my little girl, my wife. I love my, my, both, my wife and I both love our children so much. We do anything for our kids. And I can tell you that if I knew that there was something out there whatever it is that uh, was so destructive that it would destroy my boy and it would separate my boy from me or my daughter from me forever, I tell you, there would be a hatred in my heart toward that thing. There really would. There really would. Now, let me uh, close with a quotation. Actually, I'm sorry, there's one other verse I want us to look at. Revelation chapter 6. And this is all part of the character of God. This is all part of having his name written in our foreheads. And I'm not saying that we should be going around killing people or executing justice. I'm certainly not saying that. But we do need to have a proper view of the character of God. And especially when you're raising kids, I mean, I don't, you know, a lot of you are teenagers, you don't have children, or you're in your 20s. But if you have children, you have to have uh, mer mercy and justice if you're going to raise your kids properly. You just have to. You know, when, when my son does something where that's wrong, uh, he, he suffers for it. <laughs> 
if you know what I mean. Uh, one time he came to me and he knew what he did and he laid down right in front of me and he was ready for a spanking. He was just ready for me to whack him. And I don't whack him very often. And I don't whack him in anger. And when I do whack him, I let him know that I love him and I, know, I let him know why I'm doing this. It's because I care for him and I don't want him to do things that are wrong. Love, justice and mercy have to go together in our characters. They have to if we're going to raise children correctly. If we're going to have a sanctified Christian life that is developing to be like Jesus, we have to have mercy and justice. You have to be willing to be uh, just toward sins that you may have in your own life and be willing, by the grace of God, to cut them out. You can't be merciful to that sin that's growing in your heart and expect to stay in a relationship with God. Sin has to go. Now look at chapter 6, verse 17. Actually, it's verse 16. Verses 14 to 17 describe the great day of the Lord when the heaven departs and the people cry for the mountains and rocks to fall on them. Verse 16 says, They said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? Now there are those in our church that interpret wrath to mean all the time that God simply withdraws his mercy. That's their interpretation of wrath. Wrath simply means God just pulls back and passively allows sin to run its course. I've been exposed to that idea for many years, and to be honest with you, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Now, this is, this is a very interesting phrase, wrath of the Lamb. It's only used one time in the Bible, which is in this verse. You'll never find another verse from Genesis to Revelation that, that mentions the wrath of the Lamb. And it seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? When you think of a lamb, what do you think of? You think of gentle, mercy, kind, gracious, but then you've got wrath. So how do you fit wrath with lamb? Here you've got a wrathful lamb. That's what this verse is talking about, a wrathful lamb. And the lamb is obviously who? It's Jesus, right? So this verse there, people are exposed to the wrath of Jesus Christ when he comes. So what does this mean? How do we understand this? I'm convinced that the best way to understand it is to let God teach us what it means instead of trying to make our own God and decide what we think it means. And we have a statement in the writings of Ellen White where she specifically and clearly and exactly tells us what it means. Would you like me to read you that statement? This is from Desire of Ages, page 825. And this is what it says. Listen to this closely. It says, divine love has been stirred to its unfathomable depths for the sake of men. And angels marvel to behold in the recipients of so great love a mere surface gratitude. When, when the angels think of of the love of God and the love of Jesus and the sacrifice that he made in Gethsemane and on the cross, being separated from his father, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Going through all this anguish, taking the sins of the whole world upon himself. When the angels think of that and then they look at human beings who just think, oh, that's nice. They're just, they're shocked. The angels are shocked. They marvel at man's shallow appreciation of the love of God. And then it says, heaven stands indignant to the neglect shown to the souls of men. When people say, oh, that's nice, but they have no interest in reaching out to those that are lost and trying to help them. They just have no interest. They'll, oh, yeah, I'll be a Christian. I'll go to church. Praise the Lord. You know, but as far as uh, ever helping anybody, trying to, trying to influence someone to come to Jesus, I'll leave that to the preacher. Now listen to this. Would we know how Christ regards it? How does Jesus think about this? Then it says, how would a father and a mother feel? Did they know that their child was lost in the cold and in the snow? 
and that he had been passed by and left to perish by those who might have saved it. How would I feel if I knew, if I, I went skiing with my son, you know, I got, he got to be six or seven or eight or nine, he started to learn how to ski, you know, he goes down the bunny slope, and, and he, got, uh, he got, he went around a few corners, and he just was lost from view, and I didn't know where he was, and some people were on their way up the, up the ramp, you know, they were getting ready to go up on the, the lift, and they saw him there. He had, he had broken his leg, and he was in the snow, and he, he, uh, he was cold, and he couldn't get up, and he couldn't reach daddy, and he, he was crying, and he was there, and he looked at this group of people on their way up the lift, and he said, help me, help me. I broke my leg. I'm cold in this snow. And they just looked at him, and they said, well, you know, the powder's really nice right now, and, and we just don't have time to, uh, to help you, you know. Hope, you. hope you make it. And they just went up on the lift. And he slowly, you know, got colder and colder and colder and colder and colder. And by the time I finally found him, he was dead. How do you think I would feel if I found that out? Well, listen to what Ellen White says. How would a father or mother feel did they know their child was lost in the cold and in the snow, had been passed by and left to perish by those who might have saved it? Would they not be terribly grieved? and wildly indignant. Would they not denounce those murderers with wrath <clears throat> as hot as their tears and as intense as their love? The sufferings of every man are the sufferings of God's child, and those who reach out no helping hand to their perishing fellow human beings provoke his righteous anger. This is the wrath of the Lamb. She tells us right there on page 825 exactly what it is. <clears throat> it is a very intense, passionate response to evil, to coldness, to hardness of heart that is motivated by intense love. That is a revelation of the true character of God. We need to understand God as he is. If we want to be part of the 144,000 and have the name of God written in our foreheads, we need to understand God as he reveals himself in the Bible. And that God has revealed himself ultimately through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is a, is a uh, revelation of God's love but he's also a revelation of God's justice. And Jesus hates sin with a passion because it is so destructive, it has brought horror into his universe. And one of these days, Jesus Christ himself is going to get rid of it. And he's going to be absolutely and perfectly just in doing it. Absolutely, perfectly just just in acting directly to get rid of sin. And I'm totally convinced that that's what the Bible teaches, that's what Ellen White's writings teach, and that is a reflection of the character of God. And when the devil's gone, and when sin is gone, and evil is gone, and all that's left in this universe is love, uh, those that are saved, and all of the angels, and all of the universe, they're going to bow down and they're going to worship God, and they're going to say, just and true are your ways, you king, thou king of, of the saints. And I want to be there on that day, don't you? So may God help us to understand the character of God as it is revealed in the Bible, and to avoid these currents, these undercurrents that might end us, uh, that might knock us against the reef, and lead us to go down with the ship. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, we pray that you will reveal to us your character as described in the Bible. Help us to understand that Aaron did not reveal your character, but Moses did. And Moses' uh, justice was a manifestation of his love 
which eventually led him to want to be blotted out from the book of life rather than see your people, your total people, your whole group of people be lost. Help us to understand this more fully as we continue on with this character of God three-part seminar. Help us to understand your character and to have the name of Jesus and the love of Jesus written in our foreheads. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.